folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. driving around with Sarah Hainenbauer, an American, who took it upon herself to change the living conditions for people who were displaced and were forced to live in a plastic relief camp after the 2016 earthquake in Ecuador. She's driving us along a winding dirt path to show us the site of what was Project Saman, an alternative relief camp that housed 37 families. The site used to be a pumpkin patch. She's showing us where the bathrooms used to be, the community center, the vegetable gardens. The camp has closed down now, since families were able to rebuild their lives and their homes without having to live in relief camps for decades. This is due in part to the various alternative methods they used inside the camp. We definitely didn't come to just hand out and serve people. They, they had to be a part of their solution. We would help them find um, opportunities. And at the end of the day, they had to make the decision to do it or not do it. Looking around at the empty campsite, what's left is just rolling countryside hills with clusters of brush and a few trees here and there. It's hard to imagine that just one year ago, there was so much activity here. People living together, building a community, sharing food and supplies. Where did those memories go? Did the camp end up the way Sarah imagined it would? How did people's idea of who they are change over time, going from having a house to having it crash down around them to living in plastic with other families? Can this one example show us a different way of looking at how we provide relief aid? In the coastal town of Kanoa, in the Manavi province of Ecuador, 85% of the town's infrastructure either instantly fell to the ground during the quake or had to be torn down and rebuilt. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, there were a number of deaths in this small town you talk to anybody and every single person has either family and or friends who they've lost in the earthquake. Um, so they were displaced, they were living on the streets out of whatever they could find. A lot of people would live in the rubble or around the rubble of their house or what remained because there was a lot of um, looting and people calling out false tsunami alerts and stuff so people would run into the hills and then they would go in and take the stuff out of their houses. So I mean you when you're in a natural disaster, you see the best and the worst in people. And um, yeah, you had the looters, but at the same time, you had people who went above and beyond the call of duty to help their neighbors. After the earthquake hit, the whole country of Ecuador rallied together, sending food supplies and diapers to the coast. Many of the families I spoke with talked about receiving cans and cans of tuna. 
Sarah was part of a community group called Colectiva Madre Tierra, whose members decided they needed to help out in some way. So initially we decided we were going to send tuna and later we decided but maybe we could do something a little bit deeper for those who were affected by the earthquake. So when we came here there was a group of people, it was an extremely organic coming together of people. All of us kind of came with specific um, strengths you could say. Uh, there was a guy who's from here, from Bahia, he's a, a, a surfer actually. And so he got the ball rolling. He found this property out in the Campo, two hectares, at, that was loaned to us to, to build a relief camp. And he got a bunch of tents and all sorts of things like, it used to be a pumpkin patch. So by the time we came here to do the work we were going to do, they had already started clearing the land with machinery and everything. So we came with water filters, um, dry toilets, and a bunch of volunteers, and we started building this relief camp. And we started constructing shelters and a community center. Right off the bat, we started with the community center because that's kind of the glue, the key to bringing a group of people together, have a place where you can problem solve, get together, celebrate, all the things that you would do because at the end of the day we were constructing a little mini community. It was a temporary one but at the end of the day you've got your typical issues in the neighborhood, people getting along, people not getting along, all these things, right? So we came as Madre Tierra and we essentially took on the role of lead organization for the whole project um, which later became known as Proyecto Saman. It really impressed me that this relief camp was started by just a group of normal people coming together without any specific experience or background in relief work. I mean, <laughs> seriously, who, who does that? What ordinary person thinks to themselves that they are capable of organizing and running a camp of people who are traumatized, scared, and have nowhere else to go? In my previous podcast called Grounded, Stories of Refugee Resettlement in Vermont, I talked to many people who lived in refugee camps, in some cases for up to 10 years. Their stories were moving, to say the least. Now, of course, there are some pretty big important distinctions between a relief camp and a refugee camp. For one, people staying in a refugee camp have already crossed an international border after having escaped situations of war or conflict. They live in this new country where they are not a citizen. There are international standards for what a refugee camp should contain in terms of square feet per person, access to food, medical attention, resources, etc. Although these standards are still very low and often inadequate. This is a depressing statistic, guys, but I have to put it out there. According to UNHCR, one person is forcibly displaced every two seconds because of conflict or persecution. Currently, there are 26 million refugees in the world. And if that statistic doesn't blow your mind away, get this, there is almost double the amount of people who have been displaced within their own country, which comes to a total of 41 million. 
for people who have been displaced within their own country due to environmental factors, there are no international standards for what a relief camp should look like or the services it should provide, which means that the job of establishing these relief centers often falls on the hands of unreliable governments. For example, in Ecuador, in order to receive a government-sanctioned house, you had to live in a government-provided relief camp for up to two years in many cases. So then what? Should we expand our definition of who counts as a refugee from only people who have lost their homes because of war and conflict to also include people who have lost their homes due to environmental factors as well? Or would that overwhelm the current aid system? Are there other ways we could provide a more dignified life for people living in these conditions for so many years? With all of these questions swirling around in my head, I was really curious to talk to Sarah about how her relief camp was different from the ones the Ecuadorian government established after the earthquake. It's definitely an alternative. So there was one government-sanctioned camp right in town when the earthquake first hit. And then there was our camp. Our camp was the most um, organized in terms of donations, and we worked with a series of groups such as universities and nonprofit organizations. And our camp was comparable in to the government camps. The only difference was um, we ran it more like a like a community and that the people were in charge of their lives we didn't have curfews they were allowed to have their own kitchen so they could cook on their own um, they were allowed to have their pets um, like i said they were a part of the rule making and we also gave them a lot of opportunities we had university certified courses like in auto mechanics uh, we brought um, some carpentry courses in for those who are interested in like artisan work, we had some people coming with ceramic and making things out of bamboo. While talking to Sarah, I was really impressed by how much the camp organizers emphasized, including the relief camp members in the decision-making process, from small-scale daily things to large-scale ideas about how the camp should be run. They helped us create the majority of the, the rules um, so we had rules like uh, no driving your motorcycle in the camp, um, no drinking, um, like you couldn't have house guests that stayed for very long unless everybody had, uh, you know, agreed upon it. And then also rules that we brought as, as Saman that were non-negotiable were things that everybody had to participate in um, in the weekly meetings. Everyone also had to participate in the maintenance of the camp. So they were broken up into work groups and did every kind of maintenance that needed to be done. Another thing that was really unique about this relief camp was La Dispensa, a community-run store that was established. When donations arrived, camp members would sort and organize the donations, and then each camp member would receive a weekly allotment of points that they could use to buy whatever item they needed from the store. Because what we saw is people sent a lot of stuff, especially tuna, actually, and um, 
people would get these donations and they would create donation bags and they would put the same exact thing in every single bag and give it to everyone regardless of their needs. So for instance, there were people who received like three diapers and some wet wipes and they didn't even have a baby, but that's how it was, you know, and I get why they did that, that was fair, but it was something that was donated and then later was thrown in the street or thrown in the garbage because the people didn't need it. So we decided why not do it more like a store so people can choose what it is they want because we had so many things. I mean, we had everything from batteries to medical supplies, clothing, food, um, candles, women's hygiene products, um, like feminine hygiene products. I mean, you name it. We got some really weird things, too. We got a bunch of packing tape and um, tents and a ton of water and just all sorts of things. And then through the course of the months, we kept getting more and more things. So um, it, was a very, it was a huge success. Um, we were able to distribute donations to the people on the camp for 16 months straight. I think this is a really creative solution, especially when you think of how many international aid organizations distribute donations in standardized boxes of you know, very specific things that may or may not suit the needs of a given population. I think one important thing I've realized being here in Ecuador for a year is there is definitely no one-size-fits-all. One effective solution to environmental displacement in Cambodia could have a wildly different result in Madagascar. It's all about local context. You always need people on the ground to help identify the needs of a given group of people. But that isn't to say that we should disregard a fantastic solution just because it took place somewhere else. Rather, it's all about interpreting and adapting. For example, it's widely understood that varying degrees of psychological trauma always accompany losing your home. And there needs to be more emphasis placed on where we physically locate both relief and refugee camps. How we arrange the layout of the camp housing and how we provide psychological help. So by the time they got to the camp, they were very relieved. Our camp was about six kilometers in the countryside. It's extremely peaceful out there. First of all, there's no worry of a tsunami, um, which everyone is very concerned about. So that right off the bat alleviated a lot of stress. Um, just the sounds of nature in and of itself, people were very at peace. Number of people came up to us and, and said, you know, that this they just feel really happy, they're content, they don't feel scared. Some of them stayed in the camp for months before they um, ventured into Kanoa. Because what happened was the earthquake happened and everybody ran into the countryside. In fact, some of the people stayed on the land where we built the camp before we even started anything and then they kept trekking further in because everyone is so afraid of tsunamis and other people were afraid of the town itself. They were afraid to see what happened. So we had people on the camp with severe emotional trauma, which is why we brought in um, um, therapists and psychologists who did weekly work with, with the people on the camp and um, because there was severe trauma not just because of losing family, but there were people who were injured, um, and then just the fear that they had. So really the camp um, provided a lot of solace in that way. 
Um, and then once people started to get more comfortable, they started to be like neighbors. So they would get together, they would visit, they would they call it chismear, so sit around and gossip and drink their coffee and watch their Mexican telenovelas and stuff. And then they'd bicker and complain and, you know, everything you could imagine from a, from a, a small neighborhood, right? So there was, in general, I would say the, the atmosphere was, was positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we did what we set out to do, which was to provide temporary refuge so people could get back on their feet. While I was talking to Sarah, I was blown away by what they were able to accomplish with the camp the amount of services, support, and community they were able to foster. It left me wondering, you know, how much of the success of the camp was based really on the leadership style of the people in charge, and what are the essential elements that could transfer to other situations. My first thought was about scale. At Project Saman, we are talking about a relief camp of 37 families roughly 140 individuals. Globally, we are talking about camps with an average of 11,000 residents. Obviously, it's going to be more of a logistical challenge to provide resources like job skill training and psychological support. But that doesn't mean it has to be impossible. And this small-scale example can still be applied to global refugee camp situations. For example, Within a camp of 11,000 refugees, we can still break down campsites into smaller units of 20 to 30 families. And within those units, the residents themselves could decide community guidelines and rules and participate in community-run discussions and activities to help daily operations function better. I asked Sarah if she had any advice for other people who are considering creating an alternative relief camp or who work in this field? I would say try really hard to go in being as realistic as possible. You're not going to change the world with the camp, but you are going to make an impact on people's lives. Um, To try to be focused on the goals of the camp to go in it right off the bat with clear boundaries and clear rules and clear roles for everyone, including the people who are staying on the camp. Um, to always make sure that the people on the camp are participating um, and that at the end of the day, they're kind of in charge of the camp. It's their lives, they're adults. They're, you're not a nanny, so don't act like one. They might try to make you act like one and they'll try to pull you in. There'll be a lot of problem solving, a lot of mediation, conflict resolution. Um, and you know just to go for it stick with your goals and maybe research some models because it's not like anyone's inventing the wheel at this point I mean refugee camps are it's a part of disaster relief they have their positives and negatives in not only in the day-to-day activity but also the outcomes Um, it is easy to generate uh, like a dependence So it's really important that people are empowered to take charge because honestly, if you don't kind of kick them out eventually, some of them would stay forever. They really would. So you just kind of have to be true to yourself and ask for help and don't forget to take rests. 
and um, to think about yourself too because it's very easy to get completely um, overwhelmed and enveloped in the project and then you come out of it feeling like a wet dish rag. <laughs> it's very tiring. <laughs> yeah, don't forget to ask for help. One of my quote-unquote research questions going into this year was, how is home reimagined after displacement? And now thinking about it, such a theoretical question feels weird to think about when we're talking about actual fellow people here. You know, it's all just webs of connection and relationships, missed opportunities and shifting power structures. But despite this, I really think that Sarah's camp did begin to provide new ideas for the residents of what their lives could look like and what a community could really feel like. In global refugee camps, there has been a similar trend. According to the United Nations Development Program report titled The Living Conditions and Well-Being of Refugees, authored by Bart de Bruin, despite the deplorable living conditions within refugee camps, research has found that refugees' living conditions are still often better than the living conditions of residents who live outside the camp and around them in that area, which is pretty incredible to think about. Even though there's so much trauma, loss, and pain associated with losing a place you called home, there can sometimes also be a sense of rebirth, of seeing new opportunities, a chance to craft a new life for yourself. What we were able to do is provide people with a refuge for two years, essentially, um, where they didn't have to pay for much. You know, they had to buy like meat and cheese and perishables, but everything else that we had on the camp was all free. For some, they said it was the best they've ever had because they had um, running water, they had electricity, they had bathrooms, they had showers. Um, some of the people had never had that before. Um, so when you're coming into a refugee camp, living in a shelter made out of, you know, plastic banners, and they tell you this is the best they've ever lived, it gives you an idea of what it was like before. And so there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. And it's not just Manabi, as we know, this is a worldwide issue, actually. There is a tension here. Some people think the category of refugee should be expanded to include environmental displacement, which could improve standards for everyone and the quality of the camp conditions. Other people think that doing this would overwhelm the system. But then, you know, what about the basic rights of people who've been displaced? Some good news is that globally, humanitarian actors are recognizing the need to create more formalized guidelines for assisting internally displaced people. For example, the International Displaced Monitoring Center has created a set of guiding principles on internal displacement, which could be used by governments or aid bodies to assess the quality of assistance in an area affected by natural disaster. Unfortunately, these are just guidelines, essentially suggestions, not formalized international law. And comprehensive early warning systems 
need to be developed globally. As unfortunate as it is, while we have people living in formal refugee camps or relief camps like Sarah's, there is an increasing number of people who are living in urban areas without the support of a camp. Tackling this issue requires working on a much wider scale with people such as urban planners, local governments, and development agencies. For example, just think about providing water and sanitation in a refugee camp or internally displaced person camp, and how different of a task that would be than providing water and sanitation in a city. Assessing those displaced in urban areas usually requires investing in infrastructure and social services, which benefit communities as a whole. So I asked Sarah what she thought could be done in Ecuador to help people living in and out of camps. Uh, there's a lot really that could be done. Honestly, once you get the basic necessities covered, it's a lot easier to try to go bigger. So if there could be more focus on, um, and this, honestly isn't necessarily an NGO issue, this is more of a government issue, like being really serious about um, sanitation, being really serious about water, um, road systems, and, and good policing to keep the petty crime down. Because obviously when you have people who are in a difficult situation, you have crime. And that's exactly what we have here. So once you get those things kind of underway, and job opportunities, like actual job opportunities. Everybody here wants to work in either tourism or agriculture. So it would be great if people could come in and offer, I don't know, some sort of course on, on how to provide proper tourism, how to really treat a tourist when they come to your town. Uh, there's a huge need for um, education. A lot of people, People here are really incredible. They know how to do everything. Like, they are a jack of all trades. Um, so they could take what they already know, fine tune that, and then have a trade. Because not everybody can work for the tourist. Somebody has to work for the people who live in the tourist town. The key really is to try to work with the, with, first with the local government as best you can. And, um, and then really start to talk to the people, really, because I can say what I think, but I'm not from here. I can't tell you exactly what everybody wants. Um, really, at the end of the day, the biggest takeaway I've gotten from this work, having been here now two and a half years, is there are those who want to get ahead and there are those who don't. And at the end of the day, each one makes that decision. All we can do is provide opportunities, but they have to be the one to choose to do it or not. So, with guidance from outside, people turned a pumpkin patch into a community until they were able to become strong enough to reimagine home in a new, permanent place. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search 
Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Siesta by Jazar, San Juaneando by Alex Alviar, Three Mosaico de Alitas Quebradas by Milton Conde, Cayer by Sir Manique, Don't Look by Silent Partner, My Time by Ryan Little, Fresh Fallen Snow by Chris Hagen, and Sweet Tides by Latasha.